0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble.
1: Okay, hello! Woo. I'm Kat Sarfis, forever bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today we are joined by the brilliant Lee Bardugo. Lee is the best-selling author of Ninth House and Hellbent, the creator of The Grishaverse, now a Netflix series, which spans the Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, and much more. Her short fiction has appeared in multiple anthologies, including the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and she is an Associate Fellow of the Pauli Murray College at Yale University. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Of course. So I have to say, I am quite pleased that uh, Dark Academia uh, is having uh, such a moment. I think it's a whole vibe, Uh, the clothes, the aesthetic, and most (laughs) importantly, the books Why we're here. Uh, so, Ninth House is sort of dark academia perfection. you got murder, mystery, ghosts, secret societies, and magic set among uh, the Ivy League elite. This book takes place at Yale, your alma mater, and you were in Wolf's Head, uh, one of the ancient eights. So, there's a part of me that believes this entire series is a work of nonfiction. Uh, all kidding aside, it's mesmerizing, truly a book you don't want to end. And a story, I'm so happy uh, you've continued in Hellbent. Uh, So I guess I'm going to start off with what was your inspiration to start this series?
0: I mean, Yale obviously was the inspiration and the fact that, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate there, you would walk around campus and you would see these massive tombs and Mm -hmm. some of them are deliberately built to look like uh, mausoleums or they're built to look like temples or they're built to look like a Tudor mansion that has no business being there. Um, or a giant white block of rock with a, a circle that appears, <laughs> appears depending on the light manuscript. For me, I think from the start, I was so intrigued by them. And they want you to be intrigued by them. Of course. If you didn't want your attention, they wouldn't be building these flashy buildings. So... I was very fascinated by them. And I don't think it was until I I came up with this idea very early the idea of these societies being repositories of, you know, each representing a different uh, branch of dark magic. But the heart of the book and the soul of the book, uh, which I think is who I think is Alex Stern, um, really came from excavating my past at Yale and past friendships at Yale and some of the stuff that my friends and I went through there. And I always tend to start a book. Um, with a very popcorn sensibility, I'm like, oh, won't well, this be fun? We're going to have a little romp, and, <laughs> and then to tell a story, honestly, you tend, especially when you're talking about things like institutional power and social influence and econ- economic influence,
1: you're going to bump up, bump up against some pretty heavy themes. And uh, that certainly happened with Ninth House and, again, with Hellbent. I have to read this tagline because it's probably my favorite tagline I've ever read. Wealth, <laughs> power murder magic (laughs) Alex Stern is back and the Ivy League is going straight to hell (laughs) I I read that and I was like I can't like you can't do any better than that like how else do you describe how else do you describe this look like that's it it, I used to write movie trailers for a living. That was my day job for
0: a long time. It was a great day job, but you do sort of learn your way around some pretty punchy taglines. And that's one of my fr- favorite things to come up with With for friends. Like, I'll be like, give me a cocktail, put me in the pool, and we'll come up with. <laughs> I didn't understand if I had known how much fun it would be to have a book called Hellbent and all the puns and phrases that would be available to me, I would have written a hell book
1: way before. So I'm like, <laughs> <glad you're- laughs> well, now it's here. So my question is now, so you have Ninth House and now you're returning. So what was it like to return to Lethe and the world of Alex Stern and Hellbent? Like, you know, you wrote that first one and now you're returning. I mean, these books tend to get
0: written in between other projects, which mm-hmm. can be challenging. And the thing that kept interrupting Hellbent was the adaptation, was the show. Holly Black warned me that an adaptation would eat a year of my life, like of my creative life. And she was right. I thought, I really thought like, no, no, Holly, I can think my way around this one. I've got this all covered but she was completely correct. What it does is it eats your decision-making capability, right? So if you're reviewing scripts and you're reviewing rough cuts and you're weighing in on decisions like casting and costumes and production design, it devours your ability to make decisions. And books are all about making Making. decisions. Yeah. And sort of choosing your path through the world. Also, these books require a lot of research. So, um, but for me, I think because... um, I have to keep, I have to keep carving out time for them. They're also really precious to me. Mm -hmm. The Grishaverse belongs to a lot of people at this point, my young adult series, whereas Ninth House feels like it belongs to the people who found it. Ninth House was a very weird book and it is not (laughs) for everyone. And I was lucky to have a publisher who treated it like it was for everyone who was like, we're Mm going to do this incredibly weird occult story with mixed up timelines and Um, lots of murder, and we're going to treat it like it's mainstream fiction. For me, the advantage to releasing this book so many years after, I mean, for me, it's so many years. I know in the adult world, it's different. In YA, you're like, you keep to a book a year. It's true. It is true. But this took longer to write and longer to research. And the joy of that is that it's given more people more time to discover Ninth House. And so that has been kind of a beautiful thing to come back to. And I really love writing these characters. They go very different places than my young adult characters do. Um, Alex engages with the world with a kind of gallows humor that is very close to my heart. Um, and I think I felt a little freer to let some of the chaos in and help that. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I felt like I had a really firm grip on the world at that point that my readers would. And so we could sort of start at a gallop and just
1: kind of keep that up. Yes. And I, w- you definitely do. I will say you kind of, I mean, I think with Night House, to kind of, you know, you just, you give in like, you're like, this is a the world there's magic. It's real. I'm here. Like I'm here for it. And you I, and I grinds you into <laughs> submission. That's yeah, what I'm just that. like, you're <laughs> like, I'm here for it. Like I'm, i and I, I definitely would say with hell bent and I and, and I we're going to do some spoilers here, uh, just because, you know, you have to a little okay. bit. It's one. Um, it's <laughs> my- <laughs> You know the characters, you know the situation. You're kind of also, you know, where, where when Ninth House ends and you know where Hellbent is beginning, you know, there's a trip to hell. Like, you don't know how it's going to happen, but you know, like, at, when you first started, like, okay, this is where we're going. So it's going to be fantastical. It's going to be nuts. It delivers. But speaking of characters, Alex Stern, she's our sort of main protagonist, but I honestly would say you give all your, all the characters have such complexity. I mean, Darlington, Dawes, Turner. I loved getting to meet, explore Mercy more and trip. And it's like, yes. yes. And then, and demon Darlington, which is how I I refer to him. Um, It's just, I think might be my favorite thing ever. Are your characters, are they based on people, you know, people you want to know or wish you knew? I mean, that's this is
0: always a difficult question, and I will say that in in Ninth House and Hellbent, I I don't think anybody is, sp- is specifically based on people that I've met. But well, that's not entirely true. In the first book, Marguerite Bellbaum was very much inspired by a professor I had. She was this French woman named Claudine Kahn. Um, She was not an evil villain or anything, but she was this very like, she had this very very severe black haircut and she was just so cool and um, so poised and was just one of those professors that you were just like, you felt like you were at a salon, you know, and she was just so French and so fabulous. But otherwise, I think that all of these characters are little parts of me. I think that Alex is the brawler who feels like an outsider. And who is ready to take a swing at anything that comes at her. I think Darlington is the snob who lives in books and who who will always dream of magical worlds, no, no matter how old he is. Mercy is, you know, the an outsider in a different way, and the shy kid who is um, whos trying to not be the shy kid anymore mm. um, and is coming up against the world and sort of deciding who she wants to be. I think Dawes is maybe all of us. You know? <laughs> like, to me, Dawes is kind of like the real MVP of the story. Like Turner and Dawes are kind of like... They're keeping it together. They're keeping everything together. They really are. And I think that Dawes is a fascinating character because on the one hand, she lives in this perpetual state of not being able to finish her dissertation, which I think a lot of us who have ever tried to write a book or to write a paper or to accomplish anything that requires, you know, that, that becomes, that takes on a life of its own. It becomes you know, Frankenstein's monster and, yeah. and bringing it to life becomes this, this kind of eternal quest that you're not sure you want to accomplish. But I think that does, on the one hand, she's this academic who has sort of wrapped herself in academia where she feels safe. But when push comes to shove, she's also the person who's like, I am going to come up with a plan. I may be terrified to execute it. I may, I may need Alex to push me over the cliff, but I'm going to get you up to the top of that cliff and I'm going to show you where we need to go. Um and I think that Turner is just very no-nonsense, you know, he yeah. has he has seen a lot of stuff in his life, but he has a very deep sense of justice and he's always trying to negotiate that with himself and with the people around him. Uh and Turner was I was lucky to have somebody who had uh who had lived in New Haven and who had served with law enforcement and who was a man of color and um was willing to talk to me about some of his experiences and feelings on the force and um that was I think very helpful for me because I I don't know how spoilery we want to get, but sort of the centerpiece of this book is the descent into hell. And I knew going in the way I wanted to build that, that it couldn't just be about Alex. And that I wanted one of the
1: central messages of this book to be that there are some journeys you cannot make on your own. It was beautiful. And that was, and, and again, in a way to be able to these characters that were, you know, they were not that they were not vital in ninth house, but they were more supporting. And then here in hellbent, You get to know literally their, like their darkest secrets and not only those secrets, but again, again, how it's transformed them, how, how they've adapted to it, what kind of, what it has made them, how it has changed their life. Um, And that obviously is so telling.
0: We've seen, I think we've seen, you know, we're familiar with the trope of people coming back from the dead Mm -hmm. coming back from the beyond. And there are certain things that we're used to seeing play out. One is people don't come back, right? You're always going to come back with damage. And also that sometimes they bring something back with them. And so I really wanted to think about what to pay off those tropes of the genre, but also to try to do it in a way that felt
1: personal and specific to this series. Yes, yes, the whole idea of the gauntlet and and just that what you need to go through and you know giving up essentially like a, you know a piece of yourself um, in order to to make this descent you know to save to save another to save another soul and it was just it was eerie and beautifully done. And again, just, you know, when you're going through those darkest moments that, you know, these moments that have transformed these people and there was sadness there, you know, and just just to know that, you know, they had to go through these moments, but then it, it was, it's real. I mean, that's, that's life. You know, people, people carry ghosts in them. They carry demons in them. And so there's that part of it while, yes. We're going to make a fantastical, you know, it's going to be in this fantastical setting and obviously they're doing this, but it's very real. And I think it resonates, you know, on a deeper level with lots of people. What's been the biggest I say, challenge uh, and or the greatest reward in writing adult contemporary fantasy versus second world fantasy? I mean, for me, the pleasure
0: of this book is I was one of the ki- those kids who, when I read The Princess Bride, I was like determined to find Florin and Gilder on the map. Right. First of all, I love
1: that you read The Princess Bride. I just need to say I that mean, because n- not many people have. I feel like you say come it on now, like in the movie and you're like, the book. <laughs> Skip, Skip the prologue. Read the book. <laughs> read um,
0: the book. I was sure that Florin and Gilder could be found on a map. Yeah. And for me, the, I kind of wanted to Da Vinci code Yale, you know, where people could go and find, there are only two structures in both books that are not real. And those are Darlington's house, Black Elm, and then a house, called um, Sweetwell, which I don't think you should want to visit. Um, <laughs> for me, creating that map of New Haven that then becomes a magical map of New Haven and is actually something, you know, Darlington is even supposed to be working on a magical map of New Haven. There was a lot of pleasure in that for me. And in fact, when I originally pitched the book to a publisher, I made it very clear that I was not interested in writing a book if I had to create a fake university or fake names for any of these places. And that meant we had to do some rounds with legal, uh, and which I've never had <laughs> to do with a book before. But to me, it was well worth it because it creates this tension between the real and the imagined, and it me, it means that the idea of you know magic being a metaphor for power disintegrates because the power is real, the influence is real, the celebrity alumni and power brokers are real. So you you should have some part of you that is questioning what is real and imagined in the books. Um, I think the biggest challenge, other than the legal rooms, <laughs> <laughs> it is actually very hard to invent a fake uh, fraternity because there are so many fraternities, which I did not realize. Other than that was in the second book, there is a major set piece. The Gateway to Hell is located in the library, Sterling Memorial Library. And um, I really, again, wanted it to be, so Sterling is incredible. It's 4,000 square feet of, of of stonework and stained glass that is themed. So every room is themed. Now, some of them don't quite match up with what the purpose of the room is anymore. Mm -hmm. It was built in 1931, but uh, you truly can find stained glass windows that show Dante's Inferno, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, just art from all over the world and from all these different literary resources and sources. Because of COVID regulations, I could not get on campus again. Mm -hmm. I was desperately trying to, to build this map and this gauntlet that they have to walk using blueprints, using the old Yale Gazette article, which as Dawes said, is like deliberately impossible to navigate. (laughs) And at the 11th hour, my friend uh, who I had met through Ninth House, she's a a librarian, she works in manuscripts and archives, um, Camilla Tesler, she managed to get me into the library uh, along with the wonderful people at Polly Murray. I had to be sponsored, I had to get special permission, and it all came through at the last minute and I was able to visit and really walk these different stations and figure out all of the details. And in fact, the moment when Daz and Alex are like, well, there's no way to make the circuit. There's no way to go all the way around. Mm-hmm. You have to walk out. That's a real thing that happened. Camilla was like, no, it, it, there's no way you have to go out of the library. And I was like, damn, like I, I got this wrong. And then we went into the head librarian's office and she was like, oh, have you seen my secret door? And I have the actual video where she's like, have you seen My Secret Door? And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like it writes itself, like what? (laughs) And like complete with it being hidden in the paneling and the wonderful Latin quote, it's real. The Latin quote that's basically like, if you're going to bother me while I'm working, make it short. Like Yale and New Haven felt almost like partners in the writing of this book like they would reveal all of these mysteries and magical things about themselves just again and again and again. And that for me was just a tremendous joy.
1: I know people do ninth house, new Haven tours. And it's so, which is just wild to me. Have you been, have you, I mean, obviously you've been to new Haven. You you were living there for a brief (laughs) moment of your life. Um, But just out of curiosity, have you done any of these sort of ninth house I mean New I made the map. So I feel
0: like that's <laughs> like what I most made the guy using for their for their guide. And thankfully the map is very accurate. Um, it brings me tremendous joy because I feel like New Haven is a very special city. And I think people don't understand how much wonderful culture is there, how much life is there beyond the university. Um, I think it's a unique place. And the more people who come there and quite candidly spend money there, like go to lunch, you know, stay overnight, like. Explore, explore the campus, explore the city. To me, that just feel like that brings me a tremendous amount of happiness. We did an event at the Peabody. It was just sort of a pop-up event where I was like, "Okay, we're gonna be there on this day. There's no tickets. Just come and sign." They let me use the um, the I always want to call it the Hall of Reptiles, but it's it's basically the big dinosaur room where yeah. Michael Crichton's raptor is, like the like the raptor skeleton that inspired him for Jurassic Park, and where I talk about Darlington spending time there as a kid they let us use that for a signing. But before the signing, I took um, my husband and my agent and a couple of other people from the agency and uh, my editor, and I led them around like I was Willy Wonka. Like I was unhinged. <laughs> I was unhinged. Like I was just like, and over here, this, and over there, that, and you should see this. Like, and let me tell you about this experience. <laughs> I mean, It was peak joy for me. We don't know if it's going to come together yet, but I really want to do um, uh, an event in Sterling this year at some point. So we are going to try to do it just because I want people to be able to walk the gauntlet. And um, I want to talk about
1: sort of all of these exciting things that, that live in the walls of this university. I will be there if that is what, if that indeed does happen. I love high fantasy. I love world building. I love all of that, but there is something kind of, And it's magical in itself when you're like, I can go to this, like, I can go to this place and I can just, I can, you know, imagine what's, what's happening. Or I can look at these buildings and be, aha, I know you're seeing Uh that. (laughs) (laughs) Random New Haven question for you. There's nothing to do with magic, but a lot to do with pizza. (laughs) You might know where this is going. I do. (laughs) What is your preferred New Haven slice? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you and say that like
0: the whole Sally's versus Pepe's versus Frank's versus bar versus like, I, I mean, I'll tell you that the place I ate pizza the most when I was in New Haven was Broadway and it doesn't exist anymore. And it was um terrible pizza. You way home, you'd Go to parties and you would be a little tipsy and you'd be walking home and you'd be like, Oh, I need, I need a slice. A greasy slice. It tastes more like, like a cheese casserole than actual pizza, oh, God. <laughs> I can't but it's gone now. So I don't have to feel bad about bad mouthing it. I have very happy memories of eating bar pizza um, with mashed potatoes on it and drinking beer. And for me, college was truly finding my people, you know, mm-hmm. like, and so everything, every food experience and everything is locked in with just the happy memories of it. But I will have to
1: do a sampling the next time I'm there. A proper pizza tour. Anyway. A proper pizza. So a <laughs> ninth house tour and then a proper pizza tour. And it's your perfect, perfect New Haven day. What else? Yeah. 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 My husband's from New Haven. So I was, in, I got, I got the full. So you know, what is your preferred pizza? It's Pepe's. And I think that, but I think that I was, bi- I, I think it's a little biased because I feel like that's, I was, I think I was pressured into it, but I will say um, I do love it. I do love yeah. it. And I'm from New York. And it's kind of blasphemy to say, but I feel like I, I like the New Haven style pizza. I will be honest living in Los Angeles,
0: we have a real like pizza problem here. <laughs> like, nobody. Like we have a real, we have bad deli and bad pizza, and I don't get it. <laughs> and I'm like, problem theory, here. My theory is that it's the water. Okay. Mm. Like that, that we can't get a proper bagel because of the water and we can't get a proper pizza crust because of the water. I know it's probably wrong, but that is my conspiracy theory
1: for you. I don't know, but I know I have friends in LA and I feel like, yes, when they come to New York, it's that's it. It's like, I know we're not going out to eat anywhere nice. We're going for bagels and we're going for pizza and that's, that's it. That's what yeah, they And when you come to us, we give you proper Mexican food. Exactly. Yes. It's, a, it's a fair exchange. It's yeah. fair. It's fair. Um, all right. And then my next sort of <laughs> silly, I guess it's not a silly question, but it was honestly, and when I sat down after finishing these books and I was, you know, thinking like, oh God, all the things that I wanted to ask you and all the things that I wanted to know about the story. And legit, the first question that came into my head was, where can I get a pair of leafy sweats? All I want <laughs> <laughs> is a pair. We should make some. Let's I think you should some. We, have some, we should make some merch. Why not? Every time Alex is like, you know, just basically, you know, literally, literally and or figuratively gone through hell and comes back and is like, putting on a pair of these sweats. And like what dogs will say. There. And, and all I did was say, I want, I too would like it to put on. And I do, there is, one of my favorite
0: moments in the books is when she like shows up for this ritual and she's like, I am coming in sweats because every time we
1: do a ritual, I lose a good pair of jeans <laughs> yes. but, yeah. and I kind of feel like I can just, you know, in this, in this sort of, I hate this. I don't know. Can we, can we say post pandemic? world? Well? I feel like we're still, you know, we're still in it, but there's this part of me that's like, this is now, I, I this is a normal wear. This they, is, fun. that is, you can wear that to a cocktail party. No bra. That's the rule now. It got to a point where, and then every time it would happen, it made me, it made me smile. But again, and then that question just came up in my head, like, oh, I want these sweats. Where?" Can I, I will I get
0: talk them? to the very good people at Reed <laughs> Pop and see if they want to do some Leafy House sweats because we
1: are the <laughs> yes. yes. So the story of Alex Stern, Darlington, uh, my new favorite character of all time, Demon Darlington. Uh, and Leithy <laughs> is not over. In uh, Hellbent, we got, uh, again, a little bit of a spoiler, not so much of a spoiler. Uh, we got vampires. We got a trip to hell. Can you give us any hints on anything we might encounter in the future? Anything you're, you're thinking of? Okay. I'm going to say uh, vampires were very, I was very, I... Happy, very happy, very happy. The vampire, I will admit, kind of snuck up on me as,
0: as Linus writers want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to create a challenge for Alex uh, that she was really afraid of, you know, mm-hmm. because she was at the risk, I think, of being overpowered. And so I wanted to create an adversary that really terrified her and that her skills were not very useful against. I had a whole theory of vampires that I wanted to expound on. But I will admit, when I sat down to write that scene, initially I had sort of em- envisioned a very, like, sort of louche rock star, like, vampire. Like a Lestat, like a. <laughs> you know, like, yes, like very Lestat, like very, like, loose, young leather pants <laughs> vampire. <laughs>
1: The best kind.
0: <laughs> what would you be doing in Connecticut? <laughs> so I started describing the house because when I outline, I don't have visions for the way that things are going to look. Part of the pleasure of um, that keeps me engaged in the writing is I have the plot beats spelled out and sort of the release of information spelled out, but then I get to enjoy the journey with the character. So I take her to this neighborhood, I take her to this house, I start describing the house. And then I knew I wanted to create this kind of Gatsby-esque vampire for her to fight. And we will definitely see Linus Ryder is definitely coming back in book three. This will be the final book of the series, at least that's my plan right now. I had sort of imagined a much more ambitious multi-book series, but... I have learned that as a fantasy writer, that's just not the way that I work. I see bite-sized stories. Yeah. And um, for me, I feel like I can successfully round out this series in a third book. And so that's that's where I'm going to go with that. But uh, beyond that, I can't tell you too much, um, except that I'm not interested in sort of like the big good versus evil battle. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, there is there is a war to be fought, but it's not going to be a verse style um, conflict because one, I hate writing massive battle scenes. <laughs> two, I don't think that's at what is at the heart of these books. I think they're very personal and they're more about fighting human monsters than
1: they are about fighting imaginary monsters. And I mean, especially obviously. I, I mean, after this book, everyone has gray. Exactly. We've just learned that pretty much all these characters have have done all your fames are murderers. <laughs> <laughs> Then where's the line? What's the, I mean, is it? People
0: always ask me like, how do you write morally gray characters? And I'm like, everyone you know is, is morally gray character. I guarantee it. Yeah. If you scratch the surface enough, now the extent to which they may go to reach their goals or, or how, how gray that morally gray is, that's a different story. But we are all, that is, you know, all you're doing when you write a
1: morally gray character is you're writing a, a human character as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go back because I have to, I want to talk a little bit about, you had mentioned, um, I love vampire books. That's that was sort of my, like, when I was a kid and like slowly, you know, getting into and realizing that like fantasy, this was going to be my safe space. Like this was going to work like that sort of horror fantasy. And it was like everything, high fantasy, urban fantasy, you know, all of it. It was like, okay, just bring it to me. Um, Vampires were like my. That was like my favorite. Like there was like this, and it's and it's still secretly my favorite. Anytime anyone's like pitching a book, all they have to do is say vampires, and it's like slowly like and it's added to the TBR. Like and we're going to read this. Um, But I enjoy and I enjoy vampire lore. You know, you can make it whatever you want. There's part of me that is that you know sort of traditional. Like this is the traditional vampire, but then there's that part of me that loves just expanding on it and essentially blowing that up. You know, and saying no, like a vampire. Is someone who consumes, you know, and then how do we, how do we expand about? it? So I want to know, because this is essentially your, your sort of your lore then for a vampire, these demons who essentially consume someone and then take on their identity. How did you come to that?
0: This was one of those crockpot ideas that you, you get and you just let it cook for a long time. And years and years ago I had this idea for, you know, people creatures that would feed on a particular emotion and so they would evolve to to evoke that emotion in their victim. And so to me that was a likely explanation for why you would have some lore about vampires where they're sexy Gary Oldman and you would have <laughs> and you know, you would have these very sexy you know, only lovers left alive type vampires, but you could also have them side by side with the kind of vampires you tend to see in horror movies or Nosferatu. And so to me, this was a way of reconciling the idea that it's, it's the emotion that feeds them. Um, And so, and the blood is the view. And then that is what demons consume. And it also worked for me in terms of creating I wanted to really steer clear of the Judeo-Christian ideas of heaven and hell, but I also wanted to make sure I was addressing them. And so if you have an idea that demons can feed on joy and happiness, then why not have a place around that could be conceived of as heaven, where they would feed on joy and happiness?
1: Yes. And I think was something that was interesting, because I think when you think of, you know, I I feel like I've heard that, you know, people talk about, oh, demons and feeding off of, you know, that, that anguish. But the fact that these demons feed off of joy, or they can feed off of joy, that it's it's just emotion, that kind of that heightened emotion, that living, that life force. Very much enjoyed that. Thank you. I had to. I (laughs) I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy writing a vampire man. Like it is,
0: they are just pure plot walking. They are so enjoyable. They're such drama queens. Like they are fun. Yes. Um, I think the closest I got was probably
1: writing The Darkling. And so now I'm like,
0: yeah, give me a guy in a wild cape. That's-
1: <laughs> so you've been writing, you're writing fantasy. I've read that you this was sort of your, again, safe space as well, you know, coming this genre. Uh, what were your earliest inspirations? We've we, we said Princess Bride. We've already, we've, we've gotten Princess that. Princess Bride for sure. That was absolutely one. I mean, I'm trying, it's hard for me to look
0: back and see, but I can say I have a very clear memory of reading Swiftly Tilting Planet um, and being obsessed with it. And again, having that feeling of like, what's real in this and what isn't. And, you know, looking up Patagonia and that kind of thing to sort of place this story within our world. I think that uh, the foundation books, like I was like all of the sort of like old school sci-fi, like Heinlein and Asimov were big for me in junior high. Um, I would stick with a series no matter how frustrating it got, like you know, which I will not do anymore. Dune was huge for me. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle was huge for me. Uh, the Dragonlance books, <laughs> like I don't know if you know them, but they're basically
1: Tolkien redux. Yes. they were written by people who play D and D. They're rebooting Dragonlance right now. That's that's coming back. It's it's old as new. It's it's coming, it's all coming back.
0: I mean, if you read those books, you will see some of the Darkling's DNA coded into race. Like, there's no question. Um, but those I read with a friend and they were like a, like a bonding thing. Like we called each other. He was Brightblade and I was the golden general. And like, and we still do. That's how we text each other. <laughs> but like, I was taking in everything at that time and everything I wrote was sort of an echo of whatever I had read last. Um, and, and I'll say too, I, I've been, you know, I frequently get this question, and I always want to make sure to mention Louise Erdrich because she was my first encounter with magical realism. And I think she also shifted the way I thought about fiction. I had had this dividing line between genre and Mm -hmm. the literary stuff that you read in class, right? So we get assigned Fleur, which is uh, excerpted, I think, from Tracks. It absolutely blew my mind that these things could live together in a story, and that I could feel this way about a story.
1: It just, it shifted my understanding of what fiction did. Yes. I think that, you know, for fantasy and and, and science fiction, even, I, I mean, it's, there's been such amazing works, but for a, a while, or at least I, you know, felt, especially growing up, that it was sort of, it was, it was like the secondary, like you should be reading your literary, you should be reading your class, you yeah, know. Like I think I
0: already like rejected that. Like, to yes. me, it was like, if you can write a good story who bloody well cares, you know, like, like that's, that's, that's the gift. And that's the, and I want, I will not, I will not name names, but I was once at a conference and the guy who was being interviewed on the stage was asked who his favorite author was. And he said, my favorite author is F. Scott Fitzgerald, but my favorite writer is Stephen King. Mm. I was like, you shut your mouth. I was like, <laughs> favorite author is Stephen King. I'm like, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> because the idea of creating this dividing line, I thought was so antithetical to really what all of us do. And yeah. nobody wants to be put in a box of, like, you're just a kid's writer, you're just a YA writer, you're just a fantasy writer. Like, to be able to create a story, to make people root for characters, it all comes from the same place. And maybe yes. we don't spend as much time, like, navel-gazing and contemplating malaise, but, like, there's there, there can be plenty of weight uh, in a fantasy story. And I... Stephen King. I read him so copiously and I didn't under, really know how books work. So I just thought he was like putting out a book a week. Cause I would
1: go to the store and there'd just be a new Stephen King. And I was like, wow, this guy yeah. is very productive. Yeah. Always. And I loved, I mean, for me, Stephen King, it was the short stories. I love the first evening I got I, hooked. Yes, yeah. That was at four past midnight. I remember I got it out of the library. Um, I think it's because,
0: mine was, um, night shift. That book got passed around my fifth grade class like it was contraband.
1: It's amazing to me. Obviously, you, you know, you you write YA, but at back, you know, I, I try to, you know, explain to people like back in the 90s, there wasn't really YA. It was, you know, you read your, your you had your children's stories and then you kind of just jumped into adult. And it's funny because we didn't talk
0: about books when I was a kid. Like my friends and I never, the, the exception was Interview with a Vampire. Um, because my friend asked me for those for her birthday and I bought her the paperback trilogy. And then being the greedy little girl I am, I,
1: uh, read them before you're like, don't mind the pages, they were like that. It was the spine was already broken. Gently, gently holding the paper <laughs> back.
0: But other than that, I don't remember us talking about books the way that people talk about books now, which is pretty exciting to see that that people have actual communities and communication about them. My experience and every writer I've ever spoken to, we, we didn't think about which shelf the books were from, right? Like we read what interested us. And yeah. I remember being like 11 and pulling... I have the needle by Ken Follett off of my mom's shelf. Should probably not have been reading it, but I'm fine. Um, and that was like I suddenly went on a Cold War spy kick because that's what we could do. You know, it's like it didn't. And you knew, unlike film or TV, I think young people, especially, like if we feel like a book is going someplace we're not ready for it to go, they, they put it away, they put it yeah. aside. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity because. Things aren't happening. Things aren't coming at you in a way that um, you can't parse or process. That allows you to curate your reading in a particular way. So yeah, I, I find the divisions. I know that there's just they are essentially marketing categories more yes. than they really say anything about what is in the book.
1: And I think it is exciting. Uh, you know, you, you're referring to sort of these communities, are so like book talk or book whatever, whatever, whatever is your your platform or whatever, whatever you feel more comfortable. But it is exciting because I think to myself, you know, back. Being a teenager and it was just that small group, you know, your small group of friends and you were doing the same thing, you know, screaming about a character, screaming out about a book, you know, throwing it across the room, crying, obsessing, you know, all, all of the above. But it was to like, you know, five people you know, and, you know, and, you know, walking down the street. I didn't have genre buddies though. My 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 friend, Lizzie, my best
0: friend in high school, she was like reading Fitzgerald. She was reading Frenny and yeah. Zoe, you know, and I was like,
1: but... <laughs> what about dragons you know? <laughs> and then for me it was like but what about vampires um, yeah, exactly. and I also think back you know it was funny you, you were saying like you're fine you, you know you read that book and you were fine and I do think and I, I uh I was talking about reading an interview and I think and I, I guess in my head I thought I was older and then when I actually did the math and like went back I was 11 and I remember thinking like that was highly inappropriate but obviously we're all fine. Everything yeah. like, everything, yeah. worked out. I always, uh, I'm looking for book recommendations, especially from brilliant women. Um, what are you reading now? Or what was the last, because you are busy, but what was the last book that you read that just exploded your mind?
0: Okay. Most of what I'm reading right now is research because my next book is a historical fantasy that is set in a real place and time. And so that has been sort of bulk of what I mean, I'm I like, seeing. you can't
1: just say that. I'm like you're...
0: <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? So it is a standalone and my goal is, it's very character driven and my goal is to keep it that way. So I'm set a challenge for myself not to overcomplicate this. We'll see how that works out. Um, so that's the bulk of my reading has been about, um, is, has been like historical documentation and, and cultural histories. I was lucky enough to read Sarah Reese Brennan's book, which isn't out yet, but I, she has been a critique partner for me and I CP'd her and it was, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the title, so I'm not going to say it, but I'll just say to me, this was one of the smartest, funniest, takes on fantasy and life and what it means to be a hero or a villain. Like I was, I laughed, I cried, I did yeah. laugh and crying growing up, like the whole <laughs> bit. It was such an extraordinary story and um, it probably won't be on shelves for another year, year and a half, but wow, was it something special. And she touches also on her own experiences with cancer. And so it's rooted in this very real, real life, um, desire to survive and live which I think is something that always attracts me to stories and I just read Brittany Williams uh that self-same metal which is why I have Shakespeare on the brain if you're looking mm. for a great YA fantasy it is about uh, a woman named Joan who can young woman named Joan who can basically magically forge weapons. She is an actress herself or an actor herself. And you can tell <laughs> that she knows the world of the theater and this history and the history of Shakespeare so well. And I thought it was an incredibly fun book.
1: I love that. Uh, any So that's the thing. Like you were saying, Shakespeare has fantasy, has rom-com, but anytime you can sort of do that mashup, it's... I love it. I, I love, love it. So much. Lee, thank you. Thank you for the magic. Thank you for the mayhem. Thank you for the Grishaverse. Thank you for Lethe. Uh, This has been wonderful. Uh, Hellbent, the follow-up to Ninth House and the second book in the Alex Stern series is out now. Yay!
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.